So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership, and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. Hello and welcome to Inside the Mind of Champions. I hope you're finding your way through the challenges of 2022 and you're also managing to have some downtime and fun along the way. Things definitely seem to be getting a lot busier across our client network with events and webinars kicking off all across Europe, so that's great fun. The tech is still playing a role though, and it was a great privilege to facilitate a senior team session with a major bank whose offices looked over a beautiful area of New York a few days ago. So it was great that I was at home being able to do that, and we're comfortable with those technology experiences. Apologies for missing last week. I was hoping to get this episode out earlier, but I just couldn't hit the deadline. But I'm sure you'll love today's episode. Just a few quick thank yous to everyone who's rated and reviewed the show and who's recommended some of the recent episodes to their friends and peers in the business. If you haven't listened to the episode with David Smith, please do go back. It's one of the ones that's got the most comments recently. And it's great to see the numbers growing. And as ever, I'd love to make this a valuable resource for you. So please do drop me a note with any questions that you've got or ideas for future topics in the episodes through to hello at sportingedge.com. That leads me on to an idea and an invitation that I'd like to offer you as an experiment. It's our very first podcast community Q&A session. I've said before that I find it a little bit disconnected sitting here recording this without knowing who you are and what kind of things are on your mind. So I thought I'd invite you to a live Zoom call where we can just say hello, you can pose a few questions and we'll discuss a few hot topics. I'll share some insights and strategies from our digital toolkit and that will hopefully set you up for success in the week. Now I'm not sure when the best time to do this is. I'm sure we could have a poll and some research, but let's go for 8 a.m., on Monday the 23rd of May. So that's our podcast community Q&A at 8am UK time on Monday the 23rd of May. I'll stick a link in the show notes and have a look. If it's free in your diary, please do block it off immediately. And then if we get two people, 20 people or 200 of us together to say hi, and share some great content, then that'd be brilliant. So are you up for it? I'll add a Zoom link in to the show notes and you can sign up and get your questions ready. But just make sure they're not too hard because it is a Monday morning after all. 
Okay, let's crack on with today's show. We're going to go inside the mind of a champion innovator, Tendai Vicky. He's an associate partner at Strategizer, where he helps large companies innovate for the future while running their core business. He's got a PhD in psychology and an MBA, and has also been a research fellow at Stanford University. He's written three amazing books, Pirates in the Navy, The Corporate Startup, and The Lean Product Lifecycle. The Corporate Startup was awarded the 2018 Management Book of the Year for Innovation and Entrepreneurship by the Chartered Management Institute. Tendai's worked with companies like Pearson, Standard Bank, Rabobank, Unilever and the World Bank. He's a top thinker and a top man. Here's a sample of what's to come. It's actually spending time at Stanford that changed my life because you're in Silicon Valley and you spend your time around startups and technology enthusiasts and innovators. And it was that year that I spent in Silicon Valley that completely was really transformational actually for for ideas of who I am. So you can have the technology, but if you don't know how to leverage it to create really great value propositions, then you're already like in trouble. The last thing that I've seen in the best versus the worst innovation cultures is what we call the kill rate, which is how many things do we actually kill? In a lot of organizations, they don't have an innovation funnel, they have an innovation tunnel. Once a project enters the tunnel, nobody's killing it. It just keeps going and going and going, just getting budget every year. And some of these projects become zombies. Some of them are like the CEO's pet project or something and nobody wants to kill it. We don't want the kind of tenacity where you just keep hitting your head against the wall. We want the kind of tenacity where you hit your head against the wall and then you learn that there's a wall there and that you need to change direction. And so that kind of failure is great. Creativity doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? Creativity, the, the, the greatness of a, create, of a creative endeavor is based on the inputs that come into the creative space. The fundamental definition of a really successful innovator is a group of people or a team or maybe even a leader who can combine all these things together. Great technology, great value proposition, great business model. And if you, if you fail at any one of those, you're not an innovator, you're probably an inventor. Or if you've got a really great business model, but a poor value proposition, you're probably a hustler. I've read Tendai's books and followed him on social media for several years. He's got a great way of simplifying this mercurial art of innovation into practical activities, frameworks and questions to help you to turn your innovative ideas into battle-ready products and services. But his path to becoming this globally respected expert wasn't straightforward at all. I never intended to become an expert in innovation. I mean, it's also weird to call yourself an expert in something, but I I never really intended to ever become an expert in innovation. I wanted to be an academic. So I was teaching psychology. I have a PhD in psychology. I was teaching research methods and statistics, actually, at the University of Kent in Canterbury. And through my research in social psychology, I got an opportunity to be a research fellow at Stanford University. And so it's actually spending time at Stanford that changed my life because you're in Silicon Valley and you spend your time around startups and technology enthusiasts and innovators. And it was that year that I spent in Silicon Valley that completely was really transformational, actually, for for ideas of who I am and the things I enjoy and people I enjoy being around. 
And that's what led me to kind of come back and just have a conversation with my wife that, you know what, I'm done with writing journal articles and, and arguing the minutiae of psychological phenomenon. I want to get into this startup in innovation thing. And so that's, that's how I ended up here, actually. So psychology lecturer to Stanford guru and rubbing shoulders with some of the fastest growing businesses in the world, that's quite a transformation. But it's given Tendai both the practical grounding and an understanding of consumer behaviour that's informed his work ever since. So let's hear how he'd define a successful innovator. When I first began, my, my, my big interest was in products and technology. But over time, and kind of recognizing patterns and mistakes that people make, and, and that's where the academic side of me just sort of, sort of, sort of came out, was this, this the constant looking for like universal truths, right? And one universal truth that I, I, I landed on was actually that having a great technology is not a guarantee of success. And, you know, really great story, Xerox invented a large majority of the technologies we use these days, but all of them were commercialized by Steve Jobs and Apple, because again, Xerox didn't know what to do with those technologies. They had a, an innovation park, Xerox Park, in, in, in Palo Alto, right there in Silicon Valley. They invented all the technologies that ended up making, you know, the second Macintosh just a hit. And they, um, they, they, they didn't know what to do with it. So you can have the technology, but if you don't know how to leverage it to create really great value propositions, then you're already like in trouble. And then if you have a great value proposition, but you don't know how to design a really great business model to take that value proposition to market and scale it, then you're already in trouble there too. So the fundamental definition of a really successful innovator is a group of people or a team, or maybe even a leader who can combine all these things together. Great technology, great value proposition, great business model. And if you, if you fail at any one of those, you're not an innovator, you're probably an inventor. Or if you've got a really great business model, but a poor value proposition, you're probably a hustler. But it's, uh, that's where that definition came from. It's just like trying to see like, what's the formula for success when we look at, great, at the great products that we've seen out there in, in the world. So Tendai's definition of an innovator is interesting. We don't want to be an inventor coming up with quirky artifacts with no market or a hustler that has to beg and coerce people to buy their product. We want to learn how to create something which changes the game because it's so valuable to the network or the customers. So for Tendai, successful innovation comes from a leader, a group of people or a team who combine brilliant talent, technology, a brilliant business model and a really powerful value proposition. And the value proposition is the core benefit to the user or customer. In Tendai's consulting company, Strategizer, their value proposition canvas looks at the intersection between the customer's fears, wants and needs, and the product's benefits, features, and the experience you get from interacting with it. When these factors overlap, there's a sweet spot called the value proposition. So the product satisfies the strongest desires of the customer and becomes a huge success as a result because they refer and recommend it to all of their friends. So Zipcar, their value proposition is wheels when you want them, which hints at the paper use business model. When, if you live in a city, why would you own a car if it's gonna sit in the street outside your house for 80% of the time? 
you might just want to rent one for an hour or two, you know, once or twice a week. Or Shopify, the e-commerce platform whose value proposition is anyone anywhere can start a business because their plug and play shopping cart can be added into any website. The point about Xerox is also really interesting, that they invented the actual touchscreen technology, but they couldn't make great use of it. And it was Apple that applied it to a different use case on our mobile phones. And the rest is history. Inventing something isn't innovation. Knowing how to turn it into a great value proposition for our customers is the key. Finding our value proposition isn't achieved first time. It's an iterative process of testing and learning. These puzzles need thinking about in 3D. They're not always obvious, so we need to be able to think creatively. Diversity and inclusion have been high on the priorities for many businesses in recent years. But as Tendai now explains, from an innovation perspective, we don't just need people to look different. We need people to think differently too. Creativity doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? The creativity, the, the, the greatness of a, create, of a creative endeavor is based on the inputs that come into the creative space, right? And so when I do you are working on a project, they'll say, bring your favorite magazine article, bring your favorite shoe, bring something interesting you've seen in the last few days. And meanwhile, they're trying, to, they're trying to design the soul of a Nike, but they just want those inputs in the space so that they can start to riff off those inputs and have them feed into their creative design. And so if you think about innovation teams, the question is, what are the inputs into the process in terms of personalities, ways of thinking, et cetera? And a lot of the conversations around diversity are focused on gender diversity and racial diversity and things like that, which I think are important. But from a psychological standpoint, what we're doing there is we're using gender and race as a proxy for certain styles of thinking. And that's not inevitably the case. I've been with engineering teams in General Electric, for example, that are completely diverse in all types of demographics, but think exactly alike. And so what really matters is what we call cognitive diversity, because you really want different styles of thinking as inputs into the fire of creativity. If you can succeed in identifying different cognitive styles, you know, the hacker, the designer, the, 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 the mathematician, the, if you bring all those things together, you're far more likely to get like a really nice spark going there where you can sort of really learn from each other, right? And that's what really drives, drives creative endeavors there. But, but, but what you can do is, is perhaps expose people to different styles of working, expose people to different styles of thinking. Really great research by Maddox and, 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 and colleagues that shows that, like for example, cross-cultural or multicultural experiences um, create the cognitive expansion that makes people more creative, right? And so, and this is actually, they've got this really cool criteria where they say, it's not that you visit a country, is that you live there for a little while and sort of spend time absorbing the culture. That's what has got the biggest benefit for people in terms of the cognitive expansion necessary for, for, for creativity. There are a few key points here. That cognitive diversity where we welcome and harness different thinking styles takes a lot of courage and focus. We need the courage for our ideas to be challenged and people to stay focused so that the messiness of creativity and innovation doesn't turn into chaos. 
So having clearly defined objectives to focus our diverse thinking and perspective on is really important. And also the way we set our teens up in a series of short sprints gives us the chance to prepare, do and then review so that we're constantly improving as Tendai now explains. Agile is, a, is, is almost like the methodology to use when you're doing innovation. Because what I like about Agile is that it creates this notion that you can't plan and roadmap your way to success. You have to work in sprints and at the end of every sprint, make a decision about whether or not the direction you're going is the right direction. And so, you know, one of the methodologies in Agile is Scrum, which is based off, uh, you know, the NFL, right? They negotiate every play. They don't just keep playing. They get together and go, okay, what's the down and distance? What's the time on the clock? What are we going to do next? Okay. So that's really important to do when it comes to innovation because you learn something from customers. Now you want to have a conversation about whether to tweak the value proposition. So you have to use the Agile methodology to actually do that. But what's interesting, right, is that the Agile methodology is just a method. It is the questions to which you apply the method that then make it innovation. So just having Agile methodology does not mean you have innovation. Because you can take the methodology and apply it to something that is not innovation. You can apply it to optimizing a system. You can apply it to refreshing an existing product. You can apply it to, we used Agile when we we're doing a transformation program for, for a large organization. So it's the combination of Agile plus the choice that we're going to work on new products and new services. If you put those two things together, now you've got the benefit of the methodology. So instead of working relentlessly, we have a defined period of focused work and then a pause to reflect. We gather some feedback and data and then go again. People often say to me, sport and business are different. Sport focuses around matches each week and business is just ongoing. I actually think business can adopt something similar with this agile or sprint methodology with weekly or monthly projects and a preparation stage, an execution stage, and then a review stage, so that we'll feel like we're climbing a staircase one step at a time, rather than spinning on the hamster wheel to burnout. I absolutely love meeting all these experts, and it gives me a chance to bring some of their thinking and strategies back inside Sporting Edge. And I think we're getting better at these focused pieces of work where we're trying to improve our members platform or filming new experts or designing new leadership programs for our clients. These can all be broken down into discrete initiatives and that helps to break that relentless monotony. We're not always going to climb the staircase perfectly though and there's always going to be a few banana skins waiting to trip us up. So I wanted to understand the role of failure in innovation and Tendai encourages us to start small and fail forwards rather than waiting for everything to be perfect before we start. So there's two kinds of failure. There is the failure where you start doing something and you discover that customers don't like that thing or the value proposition doesn't resonate or you picked the wrong market. I think that's good failure, right? We don't want the kind of tenacity where you just keep hitting your head against the wall. We want the kind of tenacity where you hit your head against the wall and then you learn that there's a wall there and that you need to change direction. And so that kind of failure is great. Now, what companies fail to do around the innovation process 
is that they're unwilling to accept that you have to experiment, iterate, test, and fail. What they want is the five-year roadmap and the five-year business plan and the projection of how much money you're gonna give me by year five. If you can't give me that information, I don't want to invest in your idea. And what happens is that forces innovation teams to have to make up the numbers, to have to come up with stories about how they think their innovation is gonna work. And it's in making up of those stories that you then start finding problems, companies spending way too much money on big bets rather than making the small bets they need to make to find the right ideas that actually will, are, are gonna work. So it sounds like great innovators have resilience, but also humility. They're not stubborn in their approach. They have to listen, take the feedback and learn and improve all the time. Creating a fun culture where everyone's sharing ideas and experiences against a particular product or process sounds brilliant. But another thing we need to watch out for is hierarchy. When the boss walks into the room, do we still keep the same free thinking and discussion or do we narrow down against what we think they want to hear? Tendai had some great advice for leaders in the second situation. I think the biggest challenge when it comes to, to innovation, in, in, in my experience anyway, is how we deal with hierarchy. So like you can go to a small Mittelstand company in Germany and the two brothers and the CEO, the two brothers are the owners and the CEO is there and they're with the teams and everybody's kind of at the same level. They're having discussion, they're doing a sticky note thing. And then you go into a different culture, I don't know, maybe in Cyprus or in Southeast Asia or something. And the moment that the CEO is in, everybody stops talking. They're now all deferring. And so in those contexts, we often actually ask the leadership to leave and let the teams do the work and let them play a different role, which is an arbiter of process, but not one of the contributors to the ideas. Because people would automatically defer to their thinking rather than um, engage in, 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 in that back and forth uh, discussion. And when you get, the cool thing about hierarchical environments is if you get a CEO that's bought into the innovation process and is pretty aggressive about driving the disciplines of following the right innovation, then you're like, yes, that's a win. Because now the teams are actually free to fail, free to experiment, free to design, free, and, the, and, the, and the leaders are asking for evidence. So the teams know that they have to go get evidence and, 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 and all of these things. So it's, it's a really interesting kind of complexity there and you have to sort of pick and choose depending on the organization and, and the context in which you're working. So leaders play a critical role in innovation. It sounds like purposeful but patient is a good mindset to adopt so that they don't let their frustration contaminate the experimental climate that's needed. I asked Tendai if he thought study visits would be a good use of a leader's time, but his answer suggested that the secret was hiding further under the surface. I think what I care about the most when it comes to those sorts of activities is that they don't become a form of innovation theatre. There's loads of consulting companies now that have got like a whole business of like going on these tours with leadership and showing them all these various places and going to you know, tech stars and Y Combinator and seeing startups and how they work. The question is, are the leaders walking away from those places with the right takeaways? Because what's often visible in terms of how companies are working hides the philosophy that drove those choices. And if we try and imitate what's visible, 
without fully understanding the philosophy that drove those choices, we're not going to get the benefits. But if you learn the philosophy that drove the choices of what you're observing, you can take the philosophy and implement a version of that that works for you. Let's take an example, a really stupid example, the sticky note, right? Every innovation activity that we engage in, people are using sticky notes, multicolored walls with sticky notes. If you Google innovation team on Google Images, you'll see people standing in front of a wall with sticky notes. And so in the end, the CEO comes back from the Silicon, Silicon Valley and says, from now on, we use sticky notes in meetings. But that's, the point is not the use of sticky notes, right? The reason we use sticky notes is because in innovation, we have the philosophy that your first ideas are typically bad ideas. And so you want to capture them on something temporary and movable. We also know that the way that we cluster ideas or categorize things is a moving and movable object. And so you want to use a tool that allows you to be able to move things, rearrange them, reconfigure them. There's a philosophy there that underlies that layer of thinking. Now, if as an organization, you don't embrace the idea that usually your first ideas are bad, you want to design, throw them away, rip off the sticky note, chuck it in the bin. If you don't actually embrace that philosophy, it doesn't matter that you're using sticky notes because the sticky notes will stay on the wall with their bad ideas. So you might as well just write the 35 page business plan, right? And so that's really what we're looking for leaders to really be thinking about. What is the underlying philosophy that's driving this behavior? You can try and copy what's inside an iPhone or copy the design of a pair of shoes, but what you can't replicate is the culture of creativity that sits behind these innovative businesses. I agree with Tendai's point here. That's why in our members club interviews, we don't ask people just to tell us about how they won the medal or how they won their business award. We try and ask them what they were thinking at the time how they set their teams up for success and what kind of conversations underpinned their success. Because that's exactly what we have to replicate and translate back into our own cultures. We might not be able to be an Olympic rower, but we can have their focus. We can't be an award-winning thought leader in sustainability, but we can use their advice to shape our own long-term strategy. I've been absolutely thrilled to see some of the most forward-thinking brands using our digital library to drive fresh thinking and innovation across their own businesses recently. One client we've supported for several years is BP and their SVP of talent, Ben Gaunt, has been using a cross-section of our expert insights on a particular theme to provoke debate and reflection in a recent Top 100 conference. And he said, Sporting Edge's Members Club content is insightful, provocative and inspired new ways of thinking. It's a brilliant resource for leaders. You can join the likes of BP, HSBC, the FA and KPMG by joining our Members Club. It's more than a video library. You'll find micro courses, events and even be able to use the insights to kick off a virtual or hybrid meeting. Who doesn't need a little bit of inspiration to end this Zoom fatigue? So as a listener to the podcast, you can visit sportingedge.com forward slash membership and set up your account and use podcast 100 at the checkout to activate your free month. Give it a try. It's completely free. And you'll be able to see Tendai's whole interview as well as a hundred other world-class coaches and advisors that can help you to think more clearly and develop high performance in your own organization. 
Tendai's worked with some of the biggest brands in the world, so I knew he'd have seen the, the good, the bad and the ugly when it comes to innovation culture. So I was interested to hear the key factors which determine the success across the companies he studied and supported. When you're trying to make a comparison between the best cultures of innovation and the worst cultures around innovation, you really have to think about it along three dimensions. Uh, the first dimension is leadership support. I work with a lot of CEOs, and some of them will say, innovation is the most important aspect of our organization in terms of building sustainable growth into the future. It's the most important driver of growth. And then you say, okay, great. You think innovation is the most important driver of growth. How much time do you personally spend on innovation? And you'll discover that they spend less than 10% of their time on innovation. So CEO time is really important, or leadership time at least, right? You have um, leadership that will not support innovation, 10% time, that sends a message that you know, innovation is not important. But when leaders spend 20, 30, 40% of their time on innovation, that really sends the message that innovation is important and gives people the confidence to go out and, and explore. Now, the next thing that really matters is whether or not your chief entrepreneur, your chief innovator, or your head of innovation has any power or influence. In the worst environments, your head of innovation reports to the vice president of marketing, who reports to the chief marketing officer, who reports to the CEO. So your head of innovation is literally three levels into the organization and perhaps sees the CEO once a year, if they're lucky. Sometimes they don't even see the CEO. But we're calling this the most important driver of growth, and the individual who's responsible for driving this has no power. And so when there's a battle for resources, or when it's time to cut teams, right? The people that have no power are much more likely to fall victim to that. And so that's really important. Or even when it comes to negotiating with legal and compliance to get some change to happen that, ne that needs to happen for an innovation to be successful, they can't do that because they have no power. So you want to give innovation some sort of power. The last thing that I've seen in the best versus the worst innovation cultures is what we call the kill rate, which is, how many things do we actually kill? In a lot of organizations, they don't have an innovation funnel, they have an innovation tunnel. Once a project enters the tunnel, nobody's killing it. It just keeps going and going and going, just getting budget every year. And some of these projects become zombies. Some of them are like the CEO's pet project or something and nobody wants to kill it. But they just become these zombies that don't create any value. Whereas in a really great, really great environment or a really great culture, what we want to do is make a thousand bets, see which ones of those make sense, kill the ones that don't, and, and, and the killing is actually celebrated. Teams are rewarded and celebrated for making the decision that the idea doesn't have any legs, right? And then we double down investment on those things that are, are actually showing promise. And I think those three things, leadership support, power, and our kill rate, are kind of really great illustrators of whether you have a really great innovation culture or not. So there's three key points for us to consider. Just like any transformation, diversity and inclusion initiative or learning culture that you're trying to kick off across your business, having the CEO or a senior leadership figure sponsoring that is absolutely critical to be a role model and show that it's a priority in the organisation. The second thing is that for the head of innovation or the person leading these projects, they absolutely need to have power 
and then that important part of the kill rate of failed projects. I really like that, that flip from innovation funnel to innovation tunnel. And I can imagine it happening. We need to feel like we're making progress. We're getting there. We're refining. We're narrowing our focus on the one, two or three elements, not glacially advancing a hundred or more projects. I found this hard, I have to say, in our own business. And you sometimes feel like you're closing doors and closing down opportunities. But I think being disciplined about who you serve and what you bring them uh, around that value proposition again is really important because that specialism forces us to think harder about the core questions so that we can add even more value into those relationships. So I'm absolutely going to take on board that ability to increase the kill rate on ideas at Sporting Edge and, and move to an innovation funnel rather than a tunnel. So what have we learned today from Tendai? Well, for me, one of the most powerful takeaways was needing to take um, everything to be focused towards that value proposition for the customer. There's the ideation and the expansive thinking at the start of the process where we pull on diverse thinking styles and backgrounds to answer a core question or hypothesis. We can't have the boss in the room if it's going to negatively affect the creative culture that we're trying to create and we need to ensure psychological safety so that people can brainstorm and experiment with out-of-the-box ideas. Then once we've selected some projects which have potential it's about slowly testing, learning and iterating without adding too much pressure or money as both of those can hamper the experimental process. We need to work in a series of focus sprints and have regular reviews both on the product or service and remembering to check that it's still in line with that value proposition that we started out on. Then it starts to get implemented and scaled against a specific use case and that's where we need rapid feedback and review and improvement and this is where real people who've never seen this product or service before get a chance to test it and kick it. Only after a few more versions and iterations will we be ready to launch. So we're going to need thick skins and open minds with that curiosity to keep asking open questions about how people are interacting with our product or service and the humility to keep making changes and improving and going back a step if we need to. It sounds very much to me like professional sport, seeing the gap, working out how you want to execute your game plan and you never get it right first time. So you need to keep iterating and adapting all the time as a marathon rather than a eureka discovery. Whether you're in a sports team, setting up your own business, or you're leading a major transformation in a global company, I really hope you've taken something useful away from the insights that Tendai shared with us today. Make sure you connect with him on LinkedIn and also look for his books and his company, Strategizer. Uh, they the books are brilliant and they give a really good step-by-step -step guide to delivering innovation successfully. So I'll leave some links in the show notes for you. The world's definitely a different place than it was before the pandemic. So we need to make sure that we're delivering to the changing needs of our audience. So that's it for today. Remember to click on the Zoom link to join me for that live session on the 23rd of May at 8am UK time. I'd love to meet you and support you wherever I can. So connect on that link and also connect on LinkedIn. 
if you need any help, you can also get me via hello at sportingedge.com. And I just want to wish you every success with your innovations and whatever you do, let's keep learning and improving. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. Connect with Jeremy's LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work. If you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com.